Good morning, everyone. The scriptures reading this morning will come from the book of Acts. Acts, the first chapter, verses 6 through 8. And the Red Pew Bible, if you're using it, will still be on page 909. Acts 1, 6 through 8. And I read. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father have fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, says and Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. May God bless the hearers and doers of his word. I feel like I need to reintroduce myself. Um, I'm John Baker. Glad to see you all. It's been about uh, three weeks since I've been in the pulpit to preach, and it seems like a long time to me. I don't know how it feels, but I want to say this. I am extraordinarily thankful to work with men like Jordan Moore and K.J. Moore and Daniel Mata, who are such capable gospel preachers. They do such a fantastic job every time they're asked to preach or teach, and we're thankful that we get to work with them. Um, I'm also thankful for opportunities like we had last week to be able to think about marriage and to think about God's will for marriage. And um, wasn't that a helpful and a practical seminar that was brought to us last, last weekend by Brother Glenn Colley? I'm thankful for opportunities like that. It's just been a really busy time here at Katy. And um, I'm, I'm really glad and thankful for opportunities that all of us have in various ways and various um, avenues to serve God and to draw closer to Him. We are continuing this morning and then next week as well, Lord willing, with a sermon series called Core Curriculum. The government has decided that your kids ought to learn certain subjects before they're educated. They've decided that there are certain truths and principles that they believe that all children should learn and, and have in their minds before they can be considered a graduate of the public education system. They call it the core curriculum. There might be other things that your kids learn while they're in school, but the core curriculum, the government wants them to learn that especially. When you think about the Bible, there are some truths, there are some books that are just especially important for us to get into our minds and our hearts. And that's what this sermon series is all about. It's about listening to God's word and it's about paying attention to the big picture. Now, I've read all 66 books of the Bible and I've not yet found a bad one. I've not yet found one that I would say, oh, you shouldn't read that or that's less important. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying about core curriculum. However, if I were going to talk to a new Christian about where you should start in reading God's word, these books would be ones that I would try to bring to your attention. If you've been paying attention, several weeks ago when I preached last, we had a 27-point sermon on Sunday morning and talked about all the New Testament books and then talked about all the Old Testament books on Sunday night. KJ talked to us about the Gospel of John. 
and Eric Winkler talked to us about the book of Genesis, both of those critically important Bible books. This morning, I want to bring to your attention the book of Acts. Open your Bibles to the first chapter of Acts if you haven't already done so, where our scripture reading was from just a moment ago. When I was a kid, I was raised by a single mom, and when I was a kid, my brother and I would spend our days, because our grandparents were church custodians, we would spend our days during the summer especially going and cleaning the church building with our grandparents. And one of the highlights of my week, this is not exaggeration, one of the highlights of my week was being able to listen to Paul Harvey. I don't know if some of you who are younger may not know who I'm talking about. Paul Harvey was a radio um, newsman. He was a commentator. He was amazing in his ability to deliver content and material over the radio. And Paul Harvey every Friday had a little series called The Rest of the Story. And the way he would tell this story as we were driving home from cleaning the church building, he would dramatically talk about somebody that you would know at the end of this, but he would, he would couch the story in such a way that you, you were trying to figure out. My granddad and I would do this every, every week. We would try to figure out who is Paul Harvey talking about today? Who is, who is he telling the story of today? And when he got to the very end, he would talk about this person and some of the surprising things that maybe you didn't know that they had done. And when he got to the end, he would tell you, and his name was blank. And then he would always pause for a long time and Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Acts is the rest of the story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell you about the life of Christ. They tell you all four of those books about the death of Christ that we just memorialized in the Lord's Supper. They tell you about the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And Acts is the rest of the story. What happens after the resurrection of Jesus Christ? There are 28 chapters in Acts and they are profound. They are helpful. They are thrilling and exciting. If I were going to give someone an outline, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do better than that. I'll give you two this morning, two outlines of the book of Acts. Here's one to kind of keep in mind. In chapters one through 12, you have a focus on the ministry of the apostle Peter. The other apostles were not unimportant, as a matter of fact, they are doing just the kind of same kind of work Peter is, but Acts kind of zeroes in and focuses and follows Peter, chapters 1 through 12. And then the rest of the book, chapters 13 through 28, focus on the ministry of Paul, the apostle. That's one way to outline the book of Acts. Here's a second way. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 that we just read a moment ago. Jesus says... Stay in Jerusalem until you are endued with power by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses, he says, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part or the remotest part of the earth. And that is a geographical outline of the book of Acts. Acts talks about how the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, that message, the gospel message starts in Jerusalem. Where did the church of which you're a part begin? That's a really important question because in the book of Acts, the church that Jesus built began in Jerusalem. That's important. And you're going to be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem. And so in Acts 1 through 7, 
all of those chapters have to do with the church in Jerusalem. There was only one church in all the world in those chapters, and it was located in the city of Jerusalem. That's where it began. And then in chapter 8, they begin to scatter, and they went into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 through 28, Paul and Barnabas and others go on missionary journeys to the remotest parts of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. And the gospel spreads in the book of Acts. It is an adventure. It is exciting. It is a book that if somebody seriously wanted to stay with the content and make a movie, there are not many movies that would be more exciting than the book of Acts. But we can use our imaginations as we read and we can think about the details of what God's revealed to us and we can see something of God's greatness and we can see something of the power of the gospel. We can see something of what God wants us to be all about. What is the church for? What are we here to do? Why did we gather this morning? It's because of the things we read about in the rest of the story, the book of Acts. What's Acts all about? I'm going to give you four words, four ideas this morning. What is the book of Acts all about? And number one, as we think about what this book, the book of Acts is all about, it is all about Jesus Christ. If you don't know anything else about what I'm saying this morning concerning the book of Acts, it is the rest of the story. It's the story of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Acts does this for us. It tells us after his resurrection, where did he go? What happened to Jesus? He died on the cross. He rose from the dead at the end of the book of Luke, for example. And Acts tells you what happens next. And so you find these passages in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, especially verses 3 and 4, you'll notice that Luke, the writer of Acts, says that Jesus appeared for 40 days after his resurrection. He showed up in lots of different places and, showed and, and, and presented himself to many people his post-resurrection appearances. He talked to the apostles. That's what Acts chapter one, verses six through eight is. They are the words of Jesus to his apostles. And so Jesus appears after his resurrection. He, he proves that he's risen from the dead and people believe this. The apostles believe these things. But then next, the Bible tells us that Jesus ascends. If you're looking at the Acts chapter one, look at verses nine through 11. As Jesus is talking to his apostles in verse 9, the Bible says that as he was speaking to them, he ascends up into the clouds. And the apostles are standing there literally looking and watching him as he goes and he's taken from their sight. And they're standing there still looking up and they don't know what, what do we do now? The Bible says, a heavenly messenger, an angel appears to them and says, why are you still looking into the clouds? This Jesus whom you have seen is going to return just as you saw him go. And so Jesus ascends, the Bible says, and the Bible promises that he's going to come again. More about that in just a moment. So Jesus ascends into heaven. And then when you turn over to Acts chapter 2, do that in your Bible if you would. As they preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost, for the very first time people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the full gospel. The Bible says that one of the things that people need to understand is that God has highly exalted him. God has given him a name that is above every name because he was obedient and he suffered and he died and he was raised again. He's been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And this is a word, a theological word. He has been seated. His session. When a king or a queen is crowned, 
They will come in and they will oftentimes, they'll be given a crown, they'll be given a scepter, and then they will take their seat on the throne. And that's what we're talking about with Jesus. Look at Acts 2.34. The Lord said to my Lord, speaking about the Father, speaking to the Son, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, take your seat until I make your enemies a footstool. Peter preached that Jesus has ascended into heaven, that he has been exalted by his Father, and that he has taken his rightful place at the throne of God. He has sat down and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what's happened to Jesus. And so as people are preaching in the book of Acts, when you read from chapters one to chapter 28, starting in these first two chapters, they're talking about him and what's happened to him. Where has he gone and what has he done? Where is Jesus right now? He's still seated on that throne at the right hand of his father. He has sat down and it's his majestic place, it's his royal place, he has taken his seat having been exalted by his heavenly father. And then Acts, back in chapter one, verse 11, and also other places, talks about how Jesus is going to return one day. About how he's going to return, the angel says, as you saw him go, he's going to come again. And Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul preaches that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so the return of Jesus is a theme, is an idea about Jesus in the book of Acts. So as you think about what this book does, it talks about who Jesus is, but it talks about the rest of the story. The things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not tell you, Acts does. Now, before I leave this point about Jesus Christ, I want to I just kind of get some things in your mind. This is really important. If you're new to being a New Testament Christian, you need to understand some things about the word gospel. Even if you're not new, you still need to understand this. The word gospel, when we talk about it, it just means good news. And you might say, well, what's the good news, John? What is it that Acts would tell us about the gospel? There are two components to the gospel. Listen very carefully. The two components are these. Number one, it is a message about Jesus Christ. Write it down if you're taking notes. Every time they preached in the book of Acts, they talked about Jesus. Every single time. They weren't arguing with people about all kinds of doctrinal questions without talking about Jesus first. They preached the message about him, how God sent him, how he did miracles, how he was crucified, how he was raised on the third day, how he ascended to the throne of God, how he has sat down in his rightful royal place. They preached those things about Jesus. The gospel includes the message about who Jesus is and about what he's done. But that's not all. The gospel also is comprised of the implications of that message for your life and mine. Over and over in Acts, you see this question. Acts 2.37, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 16, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? They understand about Jesus maybe, but they don't understand the implications. What should I do in response to this? Brothers and sisters and friends, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you don't preach both of those things, you've not really preached the gospel. If we talk to people about the implications, but we leave out Jesus because we just assume that people already know all that stuff, we are not really teaching people the gospel. 
Or if we talk about Jesus and his love and what he's done for us, but we never tell people about the implications, we're not really preaching the gospel. It is the message about Jesus combined with the implications of that message for your life and mine. It is Christ-centered, it is Christ-focused. We must preach Jesus and his gospel. That's what they did in the book of Acts. And so everywhere you go, they preached Jesus. Everywhere in the book of Acts. In Acts 2.36, this Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Then they ask, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Acts chapter three, verse 13, God has glorified his servant Jesus, Peter says. Acts 4.11 and 12, the Bible talks about how Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. Every sermon they're preaching is about him and about what God has done through him. People need to hear that message today. I'm telling you, don't just assume because your friend goes to a denominational group, don't just assume that because they claim to be a Christ follower that they understand the message about what Jesus has done. Don't assume that. This message will pierce people's hearts. It will change their lives if they'll understand how much Jesus has done for them. Acts 8.35, Philip crawled up into that chariot with the Ethiopian nobleman and he began at the very passage he was reading and he preached to him Jesus. They talked about Jesus all the time. Acts 10, 36 through 38, Peter goes to talk to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and he says, I'm preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. It's all about him. You're not really preaching the gospel if you just talk about the conditions and the implications without also talking about how Jesus makes this possible. You understand? That's critically important. And there's a danger that all of us, all of us who are trying to teach our neighbors and friends, we get wrapped up in the conditions and we forget about the message. Those two things go together. The conditions are critical, they're important. We must do what the Lord commands us to do. But don't give people the conditions without preaching the Lord to them. Don't do that. In the book of Acts, they preach Jesus and then they preach the implications of that for people's lives. That's the gospel message. What is Acts about? Number two, it's not just about Jesus Christ, it is about conversions. And I want you to think about that word for a moment. It is a total, a complete life change. That's what a conversion is. It means that everything about who I am and what I think is important changes because I'm responding to Jesus. I'm responding to what God has done for me in Christ. That's what a conversion is. And as you look at the book of Acts, there are nine, depending on how you count, detailed conversion accounts. And let me just briefly share those with you. And I want you to do something. This is your homework. Look at some time in the future at these nine conversion accounts. And I want you to notice that in every single one of these, you'll notice the following. They deal with faith in Christ. You got to believe in him. They deal with repentance from sin and they all, every single one of them deal with baptism for the remission of sins. Every single one. When these people in these conversion accounts wanna know what they need to do to be saved, believe in Jesus, repent and be baptized. Every one, it's mentioned. Watch this. The crowd on Pentecost, Acts 2, 38 through 41. Those who received his word and believed his words were baptized. 
And that day there were added about 3,000 to their number. Not only that, but the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, when Philip goes into Samaria, you remember how Jesus said, you're going to go into Judea and Samaria? Philip was the one who went to Samaria and began to preach the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that people who gladly receive Philip's word, they understood the gospel that he was preaching, they were baptized. Simon the sorcerer was one of those. He listened to what Philip had to say, repented, and was baptized. Again, the Ethiopian nobleman. In Acts 8, he's riding in a chariot and he's reading from Isaiah 53, which is an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, about the Christ. And Philip comes along and gets up in the chariot with him and says, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I unless someone tells me? And the Bible says that he began to preach to him Jesus. And it wasn't long as Philip was preaching about Jesus that the Ethiopian nobleman said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? When we preach Jesus and we preach the implications of that message for people's lives, they're gonna get the idea, brothers and sisters and friends, that baptism is something they need to do. Why? Because they preach the message and the implications of that message for people's lives. That's the gospel. Again, Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, you find three accounts of his conversion. He tells two of them, the last two. But in Acts 22:16, 16, after Saul of Tarsus has been fasting and praying for days, Ananias comes to him and he says, why do you tarry? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22, verse 16. How did Saul of Tarsus become a Christian? How did conversion take place in his life? It happened when he obeyed the gospel commands, the implications of Jesus for his life. Cornelius, when Cornelius and his household were listening to the lesson by Peter, there was a sign, a miraculous sign. And write this down if you're taking notes. The miracle in Acts 10 that, that Cornelius was able to speak in tongues and those kinds of things, the miracle was not for Cornelius. It was for Peter and the Jews. It was to tell Peter and the other Jews that it's okay to baptize this Gentile. That's why that miracle was done. And when Peter and the other Jews saw in Acts 10, 47 and 48, what happened to Cornelius, they saw him speaking in tongues. Peter said, can anyone forbid water? He's talking about baptism. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized just as we were? They received the same gift that we did. How did Cornelius become a Christian? He turned from his sins, he believed in Jesus Christ, he was baptized. Again, Lydia and her household, Acts 16 verses 14 and 15, you know what Lydia did? She heard the message about Jesus, she understood its implications, she repented and she was baptized. Philippian jailer, you know what he did? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and with all your heart you'll be saved. That's what Paul said to him, Acts chapter 16 verse 31. And you know what they did? They spoke to him about Jesus and that very hour of the night they took him, he washed their stripes and he was baptized, he and all his household and they rejoiced after their baptism. The Corinthians in Acts 18 verse eight, you know what they did? Heard a message about Jesus, repented of their sins, were baptized. The people in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 verses one through five, they heard about what Jesus had come to do. They only knew the baptism of John, but when they understood about Jesus, they were baptized for the remission of their sins. In every one of these conversion accounts, brothers and sisters and friends, in every single one, the way that somebody responds to the good news about Jesus is consistent. 
It's consistent across the board. Believe in him, repent of your sins, be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Baptism is a burial and it is a raising to walk in newness of life. We're being buried with Christ, we're being raised with Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches about baptism. Romans chapter six, verses three through five. Some of you need to think about being baptized. Some of you need to think about, because you know that Jesus has done all this for you, you need to think about being baptized. And I don't know what it is that's causing you to say, well, you know, it's not time for me to do this or I'm not ready to do this yet. I'm telling you, the gospel message has not been obeyed until we believe what the Bible says about Jesus and then we do something about it. My question for you this morning is what's holding you back? The book of Acts, everywhere they went, they told this same message, same story, and there was this same response. What's holding you back from being baptized? Next, what's the book of Acts about? It's about unity, oneness, togetherness. Did you know that the New Testament has some dominant major themes and one of those dominant major themes in the New Testament is the theme of unity, of togetherness, of oneness. There are many words in Acts we could highlight. I just wanna highlight one for a moment. It is translated with two words in English. It's a Greek word that means one accord. One accord. And the idea is that everybody's together. Everybody's in agreement. There is no dissension. There is no, well, I've got my faction and you've got your faction and we're playing political games to see who's going to win. There's none of that. Being of one accord means that these people who responded to the gospel message and that were converted to Christ, they were one in Christ critically important idea. We're pleading, brothers and sisters and friends, with our religious neighbors, can we not all be of one accord? Can we not all look at the Bible and do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names? Can we not just do right now today what these people in the book of Acts were doing 2,000 years ago? If we just did that, wouldn't we be the same thing they were? They were Christians and they were of one accord. Where did the divisions among us come from? Where did religious division originate? Didn't come from God. In the book of Acts, you find frequently Christians being said to have been of one accord. In their prayers, they were of one accord. The apostles were in Acts 1.14, but the early Christians were in Acts 4.24. When they were persecuted, they didn't say, well, Peter and John shouldn't have been mouthing off to the Sanhedrin. You know, they just, they pushed it too far. They shouldn't have said those things they said. And that's Peter and John's problem. No, they said, Lord, we are being persecuted and of one accord, we're praying to you for boldness. They were of one accord. This is, these are our people. As a matter of fact, when they got together to worship, the Bible tells us that they were of one accord. The apostles were of one accord. They were together on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 1. And then in Acts 2.42, the Bible tells us that those who were baptized continued steadfastly in doctrine, the doctrine of the apostles, and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They continued with one accord to do these things. In fellowship, they were of one accord, Acts 2.46. There wasn't any, well, 
those people over there, that group over there, they like to do that. And, and this group over here, they, they were together of one accord in each other's homes and in the temple with, with gladness and simplicity of heart, constantly breaking bread, the Bible tells us. In Acts 5 verse 12, the disciples, after the, after the uh, judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, they were together with one accord. They had a common identity. Who are your people? If somebody says, well, who, who are your people? You say, well, my people, you might think about your immediate family or you might think about some cultural group that you belong to. Who are your people? The book of Acts tells us that when we're converted to Christ, my people, they become God's people, become my people. It's, it's, an, it's a matter of identity. It's a matter of who I am. I'm part of God's people. And even in their eagerness to obey, we want to do God's will. We're of one accord. We desire to do what Jesus wants us to do. This idea of unity is found throughout the book of Acts. It's found throughout the New Testament. And watch the, watch the progression. If you've looked at the last points that we've just observed, when Jesus Christ is preached and when people are converted to him, the result is the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 verse 3. That's the way the Bible talks about conversion to Christ. What is the book of Acts about? Last this morning, it's about us. It's the rest of the story. You and I are still part of some of the things that we see happening in the book of Acts. Even today, we want to take the gospel seed, Luke chapter 8, verse 11, and plant it in people's hearts, most of all our own, and we want to watch the fruit that grows from that. And the church today needs to realize that there is continuity between what we read happening with the church in the book of Acts and what ought to be happening among us today. And there are some challenges in this. I'm just going to take this point, and instead of making this individual, I'm going to make it corporate. This is about the church. There are some things we need to be careful about as the church of Jesus Christ, based on what Acts tells us. Number one, Acts challenges the church to be Christ-centered. Take your Bible and open it up to Acts 5, verse 42. I, won't, I don't want you to miss this. Acts 5 and verse 42, it's the last verse in that chapter. Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. Every congregation of God's people must be Christ-centered. How do you know that, John? It says in Acts 5.42, every day, that's all the time, in the temple and from house to house, that's everywhere, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You want to know what these people wanted to talk about? If you talk to an early Christian, they wanted to talk about Jesus. They wanted to talk about what he's done. They wanted to talk about his exaltation and his session and his second coming. They wanted to talk about those things because that's what the gospel is. Every New Testament Christian, every New Testament church needs to be Christ-centered. Second, the challenge of the book of Acts. We are to be bold and distinctive. We don't go out of our way to be offensive or, or to be mean-spirited to people, anything like that. That's not what bold and distinctive means. Bold and distinctive just means that if people need to hear some difficult truths, we're not going to shy away from saying things like, Acts 2.36, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Or Acts 7.54, 
just as your fathers resisted the Holy Spirit, you uncircumcised in heart and ears, so do you. There are some times when we need to be forthright and direct with people about sin and about getting right with God. That's what this means. Not because we want to be better than other people, not because we want to be right and they're wrong, but because we love the Lord and because this is about His mission in people's lives. Bold and distinctive. We are to be, as the church, intentionally persuasive. You find the word reasoning and persuading in passages like Acts 19 verse 8, Acts 28 verse 23. They reasoned with people, they persuaded people that God's way is the right way, that Jesus is the Christ, that the kingdom of God has come. They reasoned and persuaded about these things. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, need to reason with people and be persuasive with people. It's what, it's what God's given us to do. We also need to be sensitive to our setting. That means that not all cultures and not all opportunities are created alike. In Acts 2, Peter preached to a bunch of Jews who had been raised and they knew the scriptures. And so Peter could quote an extensive lengthy passage from Joel as well as Psalm 16, as well as some other places, Psalm 110. Peter could quote all those scriptures and the Jews were right there with him because they knew those passages well. They knew what he was talking about. But then when you turn over to Acts chapter 17 and you see Paul preaching, he's on Mars Hill talking to a bunch of Stoic philosophers. They don't know much about the Hebrew scriptures. And so Paul doesn't quote a ton of scripture. I'm not saying that that would have been wrong for Paul to do. What I'm saying is his approach is a little bit different. He still talks about Jesus. He still talks about what God has done in Jesus Christ, but he's sensitive to the fact that he's talking to a different audience than the one he could have been talking to if he'd been there in Acts chapter two. And the message for the church today is this. We need to open our eyes and pay attention to the people we're talking to. And we need to ask, what is their understanding? What do they know about God? And we need to start there and work with them and help them to see the greatness of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The book of Acts challenges us to be sensitive to our audience, to our setting, and tell the truth and make it plain so that people who hear can respond in faith to the good news of the gospel. Maybe you're ready to do that. Maybe you're ready to respond. If we can help you do that this morning, or if we can help you by praying for you and praying with you, won't you come this morning while together we stand and while we sing. Jesus, the loving shepherd.